just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under 80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. 
and we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story, and... Yeah, that's what we've got going on. Some spooky stories for you to listen to with some cool, snary drums going on in the background. And, yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. And if you are lucky enough at the very beginning of October, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy, they have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives, uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Toss of chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get. We've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly horror stories. Recording by Andy Sames. In the Cliffland of the Dane. By Howard Pease. A letter to the Reverend Lawrence Stern at Coxwold. From John Hall Stevenson at Skelton Castle, as set down by his nephew, Freddie Hall. The truth is, Reverend Sir, that being eventually designed for the bar, I had taken up this quest with an additional vigour, for here was a mystery wherein my Lord Chief Justice himself would have had a difficulty in seeing the proper clue on it. For some months previous to my sojourn at Skelton Castle, there had been mysterious midnight thefts of sheep, heifers and such like cattle on the hills about here, Bedka, and Dambyway, and even on occasion a murder added, as in the case of poor Jack Mosscrop the shepherd, who was found in the early morning with his head cut in twain, as though by some mighty cleaver, stark dead and cold on the low-lying ground beyond Kirkleatham. Much disquietude had been caused thereby amongst the farmer folk, and the whole countryside was agape with excitement and conjecture, but nothing had been discovered as to the malefactor, though many tales were told, more especially by the women folk, who put down all mishaps to the same unknown agent. Some said twas a black man who had escaped off a foreign ship that had been stranded by Teasmouth. But in that case, one would imagine that such an one would have eaten his victim raw, whereas the sheep and heifers that were killed had always been growlitched, as the Scotch term it. That is, had been cut open with a knife and disemboweled and the carcasses removed. Some again avowed twas an agent of the Prince of Darkness, for there were hoof marks of an unshod horse discovered on one or two occasions leading up and away from the scene of the slaughter and blood drops alongside, as though the body had been slung from the horse's quarters and there dripped down as he sped along. 
Now, as you may imagine, I too had battered my brain with various conjectures, but without practical result till one night after hunting all day, and having lamed my mare badly with an overreach, I was returning slowly homeward by a short cut across Eston Nab, so as to strike the Gisborough Road, and thence straight to Skelton. It was a stormy November night, time about nine o'clock, for I had stayed supper with a friendly yeoman, one Petch, of a noted family hereabout, and was trudging afoot so as to ease the mare along the desolate hilltop, wherein a kind of basin there lies a lonely pool of water, set round in the farther side by a few draggled wind-torn firs. There was a swamped moon overhead, shining now and again as wreckage shows amongst billows, the gleam but momentary, so that when I caught sight of a kneeling figure across to the side of the mere, I could scarce distinguish anything at all, whether it were a boggart, as they say here, or some solitary shepherd seeking his sheep. However, at that moment there was a break overhead, and the moon, roomy-eyed, shook her head clear of cloud, whereby I saw plain enough twas a tall burly man kneeling beside some object or other, and a mighty big horse standing a bit to the rearward of him. I drew nigher without being perceived, and the light still holding, saw that twas a young stirk or heifer the man was disemboweling, "'Aha!' shouts I, without a further thought than that here was the midnight miscreant and cattle-stealer, and that I had caught him red-handed. With that he lifts his head and gazes across the pool at me fixedly for an instant of time, then, with a whistle to his horse, leaps to his feet, vaults to the saddle, and swings away at a hard gallop round the mere's edge, the moonlight flashing back from some big axe he was carrying in his right hand. "'Tally-ho!' shouted I, commencing to run after him, bethinking me he was for escaping. But no sooner had he rounded the edge some hundred and fifty yards away than I saw twas he who was chasing me. Another look at him, tearing towards me, was sufficient to change my resolution, and hot-foot I tore round to t'other end, trusting to win to the wood's edge before he could catch me up. I heard the hard breathing of the horse close behind me, the crunch of his hoofs coming quicker and quicker. One fleeting glimpse I threw backward, and saw a bright axe gleam above me. Then, my foot catching in a tussock, I sank headlong, the horse's hoofs striking me as I fell. I must suppose, for at that moment the moon was swallowed again by a swirl of cloud, that in the changing light he had missed his blow and finding myself unhurt I was able to gain my feet, make a double and gain the wall's edge by the plantation, before he had caught me up once more. Just as I vaulted over a crash of stone sounded, some loose ones at top grazing my foot as I touched the ground on the far side. The wood, however, was pitch black, thick with unpruned trees. I bent double and dived deeper into its gloomy belly. Safe now, thinks I, as utterly outdone, I sank on a noiseless bed of pine needles, and by the Lord Harry, twas none too soon, for if it hadn't been for the kindly moon dipping, I'd have been in two pieces by now. To Jupiter Optimus Maximus I owe an altar, says I, in my first recovered breath, and curse that infernal reaver, says I in my second, but I'll be upends with him yet. No sound came from without. 
All was still, save for the soughing in the pines overhead. Quarter of an hour passed, perhaps, and I determined to creep to the wall and see if my assailant were anywhere visible. The wind had freshened, clouds were unravelling to its touch, and I could see clearly enough now across the desolate hilltop. Nothing living showed save my mare, who was cropping the coarse grass tufts just where I had left her. Surmounting the wall, I approached the spot where I had seen the reaver first. There lay red remnants that clearly told a tale. The carcass, however, had been lifted, and I could trace the direction in which my raider had gone by the drops of blood that lay here and there by the side of the horse's track. As the ground in places was soft with peat or bog, by a careful examination of the hoof marks of his horse, I was able to ascertain the direction in which he had gone, which seemed to be nearly due northeast, or at least east by north. The marks proved another thing, moreover, and that is that here was the same miscreant who had killed the shepherd and carried off the cattle elsewhere, for t'was an unshod horse that had galloped over Eston Nab Top that night. T'was sore-footed that I gained home at last. But all the way I discussed the many plans for the discovery and punishment of my moss trooper. Tis an unpleasant remembrance to have fled. Next time we met, I swore to be in a better preparation for the encounter. Next morning I started to explore, for I knew something of the direction. I knew also that my man was a tall, well-built, burly fellow with a big ruddy beard, and the horse a fine seventeen hands roan that would be known far and wide in the district. Determining to stay out till I had discovered somewhat, I rode down to the low-lying ground between Bowlby and Redka, as being the likeliest region to get news of horse or man. And sure enough, at the second time of inquiry, I was informed at a farmhouse that some six months ago Farmer Allison, away over by Stokesley, had lost a fine, big, upstanding Rowan stallion, of which he had been inordinately proud. Of the man, though, I could glean nothing. Till finally a good housewife, overhearing her man and myself conversing, cried out, Eh? But by my surely, there's that red tom of the fisherman's rest nigh to Saltburn, that's new come there, who features him you speak of, but he's nowt but a fondy. Oh, frocked, they say he is. Why, Molly, who fish about, says his wife beats him and makes him wash up dishes, the man being a sort of culteried by all accounts. However fondy or no, I was sworn to go and see for myself, though the thought that t'was perhaps a disguise that Eva had worn gave me discomfort, and made my quest seem foolish enough. As I drew close to the little tavern above the cliff, I could hear a dispute going on inside, then a crash, as of some crockery falling, and shortly a big burly man with an auburn beard came tumbling forth in an awkward haste, pursued by the high tone of a woman's voice within. Shaking his sleeve free of some water drops, he sat down on a low rock near hand, and fell knitting at a stocking he proceeded to draw from his jacket. "'Tis surely the man,' says I to myself, for in height, build and colour of hair, he seemed the fellow of the Midnight Raider, but yet it seemed impossible. There might be a brother, however. 
I rode up to him and asked if I could bait my horse and seek refreshment within. Aye, sir. Surely you can. If you'll dismount, I'll tack your horse, sir, and give him a feed of corn. And shambling away, he touched a greasy lock at me as he led my horse to the stable behind. I turned to the inn and encountered mine hostess fuming within the bar. "'Please draw me a pot of ale, ma'am,' says I, "'while my horse gets a feed. "'Your good man, I suppose, tis, "'who took him away outside.' "'Ah, he's mine. "'So says to church and to law, "'I believe, but I'd rabbit him. "'I says, who now's the clumsiness of the creature? "'Just fit for nowt else but cutting up to bait for to herring fishing.' "'Been here long,' says I further carelessly. Six months, mere or less, says she with a snap, eyeing me suspiciously. Well, here's for luck and a smarter man at the next time of asking. And with that I tossed down the ale, paid the reckoning, and strode out to the stable, for nothing further was to be got out of the vinegar lips of Mrs. Boniface. I looked narrowly round the low-roofed and ill-lit stable, but no sign of a big-grown horse anywhere did I see. Only a jack spavin cob, such as a fishwife might hawk her fish about with. Ever seen or heard tell of a big roan of Farmer Allison's, strayed, stolen or lost, about six months since? So I accosted Boniface anew, on finding him rubbing down my horse's hocks with a bit of straw. No, sir, not I. I never seen him, sir. What sort of macavos was he, sir? I looked him full in the face as question and answer passed, and not a shred of intelligence could I detect in his opaque, fish-like eyes. Oaf rocked, truly enough. He seemed as incapable of dissimulation as a stalled ox, and with a heavy feeling of disappointment I inquired what was to pay, and rode away down the slope. Curious, I mused, how imagination plays one tricks at times. Once get the idea of a red beard in your mind, and Barbarossa is as often met with as the robin redbreast. Then all in a moment my eye caught in the spongy bottom a thin mark cut clearly, crescent-wise, upon the turf. There was something strangely familiar about the horseshoe curve. Then I remembered the unshod rowan of the night before. It was the same impress, for in neither case was there any trace of the iron rim. Where the horse is, the rider will not be far away, thinks I, and hope kindled afresh in my heart, as I rode slowly on, resolving various conjectures. I determined finally to go call upon the farmer at Kirkleatham, whose heifer it was, as I had learnt, that had been killed and carried off the night before. He was said to be tight-fisted, so probably would be in a mood for revenge and ready enough to join in any scheme for discovery of the reaver. As luck had it, Farmer Johnson was within doors, and a fine taking about the loss of his beast. He was ready to swear an oath that he wouldn't rest till he had caught the malefactor and agreed upon the instant to watch out every night in the week with me round about the fisherman's rest on chance of coming across the suspect either going or returning. Aye, I'll gun myself, and I'll take feathers or gun with me there, for I'll stand none of his reaver tricks, and Tom and Jack, they'll come along too, 
and I'd burn him. But we'll nab him betwixt us, the impudent scoundrel, if it's a leaving man he is. By eight o'clock we four had ensconced ourselves in hiding places on all sides of the little inn. Having tethered our horses within a small but thick-grown covert above the rise that led to the inn door, here I stationed myself and for better vision climbed a tree wherefrom I commanded the whole situation. The others hid themselves as they found shelter convenient. One below the cliff's edge, some two hundred yards to the east, another amongst broken boulders to the southward while Farmer Johnson crouched behind the wall that girt the road leading past the alehouse from the north. It was weary work watching, more by token that that night nothing appeared save a thirsty fisherman or two, and a stray shuffle-footed vagrant or the like. Next night the same, and I for one was growing somewhat cold, but Farmer Johnson, bull-like in his obstinacy, swore he wouldn't shave his chin till he had caught summat, so off we started on the third night to our rendezvous. The third time brings luck, thought I, as I squatted down in the fork of the same old twisted elm, and tis something stormy this evening, which might suit our Eva's taste. It would then be about eight of the clock, as I may suppose the wind from the seaward, the clouds lowering, fringed with a moonlit border like broidery on a cloak, and that raw, cold touch in the air that chills worse than the hardest winter's frost. The night grew stormier, vapour lifted upward, and assumed strange and threatening shape. The cloud forms might be the giants rising up out of Jotunheim, and advancing to attack Odin and the Aesir, the evil wolf Fenir in the van, his bristles silvered by the moon. An hour passed, and I began to wish I had never undertaken the quest, or mentioned the matter to Farmer Johnson, when I heard, as if some way off, not exactly a neigh, but a sort of defiant snorting, such as a stallion breathes forth when he wishes to be free. Then a sound as of heavy stone falling succeeded, mingled with a scraping and a trampling noise. Craning my neck forward, I saw under a broadened fringe of moonlight the roan horse with the ruddy-bearded reaver beside him. They had evidently crept through some secret passage that issued into the bottom below me. I was just upon the point of raising the hue and cry on him when an action of his took me by surprise. Holding up his battle-axe, for such was his weapon, he raised it aloft, then thrust its handle deep into the soft moss of the hollow. Next, he threw the horse's reins over the head of it, and sinking down upon his knees appeared to be pouring forth a prayer to heaven, expressed in old Danish, which I have set down in English as nearly as I can. Father, the swiftness of Slepnir breathe thou into my ruin. Let him fly like thy ravens, black muin and hoogi. May my axe be as those when he wieldeth Milonir. Winged Thor's mighty weapon, the pride of Valhalla. This grant me, O Odin, grim Yig and all father. He then drew forth from his breast a small phial, and having set up a square stone beside him, poured forth into the cup or hollow at the top, liquid of a dark colour, which I imagined must be either blood or wine. 
This done, ye seemed to fall prayer afresh, but in so low a tone that I could not catch the words of his utterance with any distinctness. Then he leapt to his feet, lifted the axe, tossed it into the air, caught it as it fell, and had vaulted upon the stallion's back before I had even recovered from my first astonishment. "'Tally-ho!' shouts I. "'Yonder he goes! Forward, Mr. Johnson! Forward, Tom and Jack!' And scrambling down my tree, I made for my horse. The next thing I heard was a pang, evidently the discharge of Farmer Johnson's musket, and thereat a weird, smothered, savage note of pain and rage broke out upon the night. Seizing my horse, I mounted, and out of the covert across a gap in the wall. Dimly I could see a centaur-like figure plunging and snorting upon the short turf by the cliff's edge, then three figures running from the north, south and east towards it. The roan horse plunged and reared like one demented, the rider sitting the while firm and supple as an Indian. Then, seizing on a sudden the bit twixt his teeth, off set the stallion at a tearing gallop southward. Away I followed hotly, the others giving chase and hallowing in the background. Dyke after dyke we flew headlong in the grey-white mist, the space still even betwixt us. Then, at a sudden high dry stone wall which loomed up as a wave of darkness seaward, my horse jumped short, and down we fell together on the turf beyond. As I lay there for a moment or two, I was certain I heard a heavy rumbling of rock or stone by the cliff edge hard by, followed by a deep plunge far below into the sea. I rose to my feet and looked around me. There was no sign of horse or rider. Both had disappeared. The cliff here made a sudden bend in land, so that I could even catch the come and go of the waves in the far void below, and I felt twas lucky for me that I had been riding the nethermost line of the twain of us. Cautiously approaching the edge, I noticed it had been just broken away under the tramplings of a horse, and as I peeped over, I caught sight of an indistinct figure lying on a broad slab of rock below that jutted out some way from the cliff. Feeling carefully around for support of root or stone, I made my way down, and discovered, as I had already conjectured, twas the reaver that lay there. He was lying motionless, spread on his back, and was murmuring to himself as I drew close. I knelt beside him to lift him up, and could catch as I tried to raise him what he was saying. Whist ye then, whist, Effie, I never meant to break to dish, I tell thee, leave us alone then, lass, don't plague to leaf out of a man, aye, I'll fetch cooing in good time. There's no call to bang us that gate. Then he babbled indistinctly, his lips grew whiter, and ceased from moving, and when the others had come up, I think he was already dead. As I rode off for the physician in Redke, I minded me I had once read in a book, Reverend Sir, that this same Cleveland was once the Cliffland of the Danes, and that the older name of Rosbury Topping, the famous hill of these parts, was Othensburg, or Odin's Hill, together with much else of an antiquarian interest and varied conjecture, which I must even leave to wiser heads than mine to determine the true issues of, as well as their bearing upon the events just narrated. But this I may say, that here is the same crazy tale 
my cousin mentioned to you, set down in all true verisimilitude by reverend sir, your very faithful and humble servant to command, Freddy Hall. End of In the Cliffland of the Dane by Howard Pease Recording by Andy Sames from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea, and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator? when you've got psychedelic water. Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Larry, find, find student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design. Not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGPTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8. Yeah. Uh, you can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at... Uh, what's what's Golden Goat CBD, one of our sponsors? Yeah, you can get some Delta 8, and you can also pick up some CBD chewables gummies. They've got smokables for the Delta 8, and they've got all kinds of stuff for CBD, and they can help you out. Uh, check the show notes, Golden Goat. And while you're in the show notes, hey, 
Do you know about Donner? Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos. They've got drums. They've got amplifiers. They've got guitars. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner and check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Creatures of the Night by A.P. McMahon Harrison himself would not tell you this story. Right after it occurred, he would think and talk of nothing else. His friends found it so incredible that he was suspected of mental unbalance, and only after he resolved to avoid discussing it was he set at liberty. But the friends of his youth have all passed beyond now, and to me, as his trusted confidant, he one night told the story in detail. Harrison has for years held a famous chair in one of the foremost Eastern universities, and I shall repeat his story as accurately as I can remember it, trying to let him tell it his own way and leaving out the quotation marks. Nevertheless, to say, he will probably deny that this story has anything to do with him, even if you ask him. Imagine us, then, comfortably seated in the professor's dimly lighted study, before us an open box of cigars, with a bottle from the scholar's carefully hoarded stock of pre-Volstead nectar. The varicolored binding of the thousands of books which line the study walls are reflected softly in the dark recesses of the room. Professor Harrison is telling me in his even, cultured voice the story of the terrors of the night. Hair-raising adventures right here in New Harbor? You might not think it possible, perhaps, but I know. There are times when the dark and malicious forces that hide behind the veil of nature come forth, free to assault and to lay waste the minds of those they chance to meet. There are many persons who could tell you stories as strange as that which I am telling you, but they are afraid to. And those who have not had any such adventures are even more afraid, afraid that they may some night themselves meet such weird beings. Just as we put murderers and dangerous criminals in jail, or even execute them, so we thrust those who have seen the terrors by night into asylums and other institutions. By keeping out of the sight of those who have actually seen the terrors, we hope to deny their existence and forget them. I love the night, 
When you cherish the darkness and prefer it to the coarser glare of day, you are able to penetrate deep into what really is. Landscapes and buildings, which by day are ugly and stupid, at night become beautiful and interesting. Have you never noticed that the same thing happens with people? Faces and forms that would never win a second glance on the street at noon become mystical and immersingly important as they vaguely move through the nocturnal shadows. The poetic and imaginative creations that spring from the brains of writers turn into realities and take visible form before our eyes. It was a calm night early in June, many years ago, when I suddenly awoke after a few hours sleep. From my childhood days, I have been able to sleep soundly only after dawn, not before it. During the hours when the sun deserts its hemisphere, my thoughts race along eagerly, as they never do in broad daylight. I was as fully alive and awake as it is possible for a poor human being of ordinary flesh and bone to be. The air was miraculously still, and the trees outside the dormitory windows were as motionless and rigid as if they were enclosed in a dome of glass or had been frozen stiff. That very day I had successfully passed my examination of honors. To be sure, I was never a student to whom learning comes easily. It was always a hard struggle for me to master a deep book, but I was resolved to be a scholar and I had, by dint of intense and prolonged study, come out at the head of my college class. I need not tell you who have studied under my direction what degrees and honors have come to me since I concentrated in a field of science in which I am called by many of my colleagues the most learned of living men. That night, I repeat, I had come home from a little party of friends who had assembled to congratulate me on attaining the head of the class. It had been a very quiet party, after all. We had had a few bottles of wine and a very substantial dinner. We were limited in funds and not able to carry dissipation very far. I had reached my dormitory at about 11 o'clock, and soon after I had dropped off to sleep. Then I suddenly awoke as I just stated, and at once noted an extraordinary sensation of clearness and calm in the atmosphere. There was a feeling of suspense, of expectation, something like holding your breath and wondering how long your lungs and heart can stand it. I glanced at the clock, whose face stood out visibly in the moonlight, and noted that it was five after one. I felt an insuperable desire to go out and run and race my shadow in the moonlight. Somebody seemed to be calling me, and I felt that my presence was urgently required somewhere. The compulsion to arrive at the classroom that I felt whenever the hours of my lecture arrives was never more irresistible. I knew that I was tired and ought to get a good rest in preparation for the trials of commencement day but I could not withstand that summons. Follow it, I must. Out there in the silent, silvery moonlight, I was wanted. I could not linger, nor hesitate longer. 
Not a leaf was stirring when I finally dressed and went out. There was nobody visible anywhere about the college campus. As soon as I began to walk, I felt imperceptibly guided. I knew where I must go. It was not in this vicinity, but a mile or more beyond the town, to a half-developed park where young folks sometimes wandered to spoon on warm summer evenings, but which would be quite deserted at this hour. The wide sweeping elms that adorned this part of the country seemed to open an avenue straight to the place where I should go. I hardly noticed the streets and the country roads along which I passed in haste. But these giant plants that have weathered the years and seen thousands of human beings scurry by only to disappear, while they still survive, were aware of me. They watched me in awe and amazement as they drew back their mighty arms and made way for me. Even so, I was bathed and drenched in a shower of peace and happiness. The obscurity of the cloudless night was soft and delicate. The moon looked down upon me with interest, and marked every step of mine. My shadow swung its arms wildly, dangling its legs, doubling and twisting its head as it fell on the smooth stone wall or fluttered along the wagon ruts. At last I reached the park. For a moment I stood undecided. In the distance I heard a sound. It was like the muffled, pleading groan of someone moaning in his sleep, filled with a strange, unknown distress whose nature we can only surmise. It must be there, I thought. All this time I was not afraid. I was protected and enveloped in an armor of confidence. No doubt something illuminating and potent would be revealed to me that night, though how or by whom I did not know. I hurried on. The spot whither I turned my steps was in a gully where the sand and clay had been washed out by a flood some years before, and the rough underbrush and bushes had never been able to hide the yellow and red undersoil that gleamed through the thick surrounding sod like a bleeding wound. Tales had been told of curious events noted by late passers-by in this remote and solitary spot. The headless body of an unclothed infant had been found there one morning. It was said that unsuspecting lovers loitering here had several times seen a headless, childlike form feebly stretching out its arms to them in the moonlight, a sight from which they had fled away in terror. But after the flood, which had torn out the scarred hillside, a tiny skull had been discovered and decently buried, after which nothing unusual had been observed, probably because the spot was avoided. While I had been somewhat interested in the supernatural, the subject was only slight importance in my studies, and I had reserved it for leisurely reading at some vacation period. I neither believed nor disbelieved at that time and I was not afraid. It was rather darker than elsewhere at the entrance to the glen. My foot slipped several times as I cautiously descended its sloping sides. When I reached the bottom, I was disconcerted to note that even the grassy plains of the park had become gloomy. 
although i had seen not a single cloud in the sky to threaten the moon's dominance of the heavens something had happened a great purple black curtain had been drawn up across the skies and extinguished the moon and its light in the midst of this gully there was a battered trunk of an elm that stood almost overturned with knotted and twisted roots some interlaced and twined like the snakes in the head of medusa some pathetically projecting like the stumps of a maimed and crippled human form as i slipped and staggered among the roots and stumps i was suddenly stopped my foot was caught jammed in between the roots i supposed and i attempted to pull it away but i could not disentangle myself so i stooped down to get a nearer view a huge hand sickly white with knotted blue-black veins standing out on it was gripped about my ankle i looked closer and saw a long arm angular and rigid like the arm of a tarantula lying along the ground leading to the shoulder of a thick-set form whose features i could not clearly perceive but it was a man that held me in its strangest fashion a man who was not himself nearer the ground but was sitting bent and crouched on top of the weather-beaten stump of which i have already spoken his arm must have been at least twice his own height as it then stretched out and snatched me like a fly and then the arm began to draw me toward him the arm gradually disappearing into his shoulder as the tongue of an anteater is sucked back into its mouth i attempted to break the hold of this long bony arm that held me prisoner my efforts were in vain kicking beating and struggling i was dragged relentless over the uneven ground to the very base of the stump there i lay for a moment exhausted too surprised and shaken to know what i ought to do next i was cut and torn from the stones and the sharp branches over which i had been irresistibly pulled and i felt the blood beginning to trickle down my cheeks but i did not cry out or call for help i knew that would be useless nothing happened for a second or two the huge repulsive hand held me in its close grip and made no further move i wondered if some fierce bird of prey would sweep down through the trees from the opaque sky and begin to rip out my vitals or pick my skull something unimaginable was i felt about to happen nothing occurred for a second or two but presently a shape appeared a large indistinguishable shape at first creeping slipping and sliding painfully along the ground through the underbrush there was a noise of crackling and breaking as it came along demolishing the understanding twigs and bushes in its way it progressed like a sloth its head close to the ground parting as best it could clumsily and awkwardly the undergrowth in front of it the thing was large and round and when it drew near enough i saw that its nails were long and sharp like those of a bear and although its hands were calloused and gnarled they looked human over its face hung a thick curtain of tangled meshed hair its whole body 
was a massive hare, matted with leaves and mud. As it came near, the repugnant being lifted its head, shaking back the hairy mane. It had a small, circular mouth, and it puckered up its thick, bright red lips. It lifted its face toward me, sniffing suspiciously, with a nose so flat against its face from pushing along the ground that there was scarcely a sign of nostrils. I gazed, fascinated, and looked for its eyes. It had a slight trace of a forehead, but eyes there were none. I had been so terrified by this strange monster that I did not at first observe that still another being had approached me. It was coming from behind the tree stump, but I had seen enough to know that the unbelievable thing that crawled along the earth on its belly was, or had been, human. The third being then came nearer. It was tall and slender, moving with gentle grace, like a tall flower swaying in the wind, while the other two were of an odd hue, like the bark of a storm-stained tree. This was a pronounced green. The point that interested me most about this creature was its face. It was calm and dignified. I could see it clearly and definitely, although everything else was veiled by mist and damp, penetrating gloom. Her eyes were downcast, and a smile lingered on her lips, so faintly pink, although her cheeks were pale and transparent, as if they were molded of wax. This was a real human being, I thought. She seemed to be unaware of me. She came nearer with delicate steps, the soft green draperies fluttering about her like mossy streams hanging from the branches of some southern forest. But she did not seem to see us. Never once did she lift her eyes, nor did that sweet smile vary. Nevertheless, she made her way directly to me and then placed one long, slender hand lightly on my arm, without once looking up. With the other hand she made a gesture, as if to arrange her flowing hair, or smooth her pale, waxy cheeks. Then I saw her face begin to revolve, like a door on its hinges. Her delicate, beautiful hands opened her waxy face, as one might the door of a clock. Within was a grinning skull, with dark, clotted fragments of ligaments and blood vessels stretched across it. Consciousness left me then. For days I seemed to lay buried beneath the waves, miles and miles below the water, and from time to time I was gently cradled as the vast masses of ocean bed imperceptibly rose and fell. Once I came to and seeing nothing in the darkness, I pressed my fingers close to my eyes. They were warm and smelled salty. They were covered with sticky blood. Whether my own or that of another, I could not tell. One morning, months later, as soon as I found out, I awoke to find that the sun was streaming in through the half-open window, and the curtains were making fluttering patterns of light on the bedspread. Some people came in, and I tried to tell them exactly what I had witnessed and been through, but they only looked pained and disturbed. 
I was surprised to find the weather so very warm, and at last discovered that summer was well advanced into August. One day a classmate, of whom I was very fond, came to see me, and I told him what had happened. He listened quietly and sympathetically to what I said. But take it from me, he commented, they will keep you locked up here as long as you think and talk about that. You and I know how strange and how evil those vile beings are that come abroad at intervals in the night. But I advise you to do all you can to forget them and say nothing more about them to anybody. I have kept his advice. Few besides myself have ever heard me speak of it. But I am just as sure tonight, years afterward, as I am of those books and bottles, that what I saw and felt that night really exist. The End of Creatures of the Night by A. P. McMahon Show notes. Check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and T-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And, hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out pgttcm.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, if you don't want to do that and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy T-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.